Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting and my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Good morning. Hopefully you found Ezra. Leave, leave it open to Ezra. How many of you did your devotions in Ezra this morning? I haven't got to my devotions yet, but maybe you haven't either. But it's not often where we hang out. And you'll notice we went backwards in the, the Old Testament from where we've been in our flyover. We'll talk a little bit about why that is. We've been um, in the prophets and Haggai and Zechariah were the last couple that we looked at. Try to get a picture in your head of the timeline here. That's an important part of this whole story and, and we'll see that as we get into Ezra. But the prophets here returned to Judah if, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you, you, you remember this. It was after a 70-year captivity in Babylon. Both of these prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, spoke to a people with mixed-up priorities. If you remember, they had returned um, and they were facing difficulty in their life. God was not blessing them because of the neglect. They had neglected to rebuild his temple as, as God had instructed them. The temple there in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, they were to rebuild that. Well, there is great encouragement as we see that the people, this remnant that returned, they changed their mind and then their method and they rebuilt that temple. They, it says they obeyed the Lord and they feared him. And... <clears throat> In addition, we saw in Zechariah that there's visions and prophecies, a lot of eschatological material, that is end times material, in particular as it concerns Israel and as it concerns Christ's second coming. Well, we kind of brought this home a little bit as we looked at Haggai a little closer. He has a message there and it says, I don't know what your translation is exactly, but it says, think carefully or maybe consider your ways is, is the the, the word to them. And I think we too want to consider our ways. We want to consider first the immediate. What is right now that we need to address in our life? Today is the day to address that, not later. And you, met, you know, we talked about mud on your boots. What is the mud on your boots that you need to scrape off 
immediately. Straighten up priorities. And then secondly, we should look ahead. What is it we want to be? This means having personal purpose. You ever thought about that? What is your personal purpose? And then what is your plan? That is what impacts your practice. I think God desires to bless us, and he will bless us greatly as we align ourselves with him, as we saw there in that story. Well, let's then turn to Ezra, and uh, let's just pray as we get into the book of Ezra. Father, I'm grateful that we can gather here. It's just an encouragement to be here with my brothers and sisters, to meet together. We do it because we love you, because we want to know you, and because we desire to worship you as the central, the singular focus in our life. And we pray that that would be true even more so as we look at Ezra now. Bless our time together, our study here. Amen. Well, let's remember a few things as we, um, before we look directly at the scripture there. And we remember that Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon right there in the time of Daniel. It, uh, in fact, he killed Belshazzar, the, the third king in Babylon during Daniel's days. And it was that, that time of, uh, remember, Daniel interpreted the writing on the wall and it was that very night in 539 B.C. that Belshazzar was killed by Cyrus's forces. And right soon thereafter now, Cyrus, the Persian, issued an edict allowing the Jews to return home. Any Jews in the land of Babylon, that's now turned into Persia, were able to return home if they so desired. That is, go back to Judah or to the land of Israel. One wonders, by the way, did Daniel have anything to do with this edict? Was, he, was his influence on Cyrus um, part of why the decree came about? I don't know. Well, you see a remarkable testimony. If you look at the first chapter of Ezra in verse 2, this is Cyrus giving this edict. Now, it's a policy change, if you will, from the previous kingdom, Babylon. Cyrus is allowing a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of flourishing with his subject nations. And I think that makes for a good subject nation. They're called vassal states oftentimes in this situation. If he allowed them to have some freedom, they would serve him a little better. But we also know that God's sovereignty is at play. And he placed Cyrus at this time and this place for this reason. In fact, Isaiah foretells Cyrus by name 150 years earlier. You can look it up later. It's in chapter 44 of Isaiah that he predicts Cyrus the king coming after the 70-year captivity, then allowing the Jews to go back to the land. So with Zerubbabel as their leader, there is a small group of Jews that, as we saw last time, they head home carrying God's special articles for the temple with them. And again, this was about 538 or 537. The years are counting down. The leaders now in chapter 1 are carefully listed. The heads of the families, you see them there actually in chapter 2 of Ezra. And the priests, the Levites are mentioned. Those are important to the temple worship, to the leadership of the land. Haggai and Zechariah are in this group now as we look at Ezra. And by the time you get to 64, that's, that's verse 64 and verse 65, we find that the number of those returning was about 50,000. He, he carefully lists the group there. Well, the first order of business as they arrive 
back is the house of God. I, th I think it has something to do with the importance of the sacrifice. They couldn't offer sacrifices in Babylon in the same way that they could on this spot in Israel. For centuries, the altar and sacrifices were what they did on the Temple Mount there. And the location is actually pretty important. And if you, if you know anything about what's going on in Israel today, they are now, even now, recreating temple articles in anticipation of rebuilding their temple on that same spot. So according to the law of Moses, it says there in verse 2, this is chapter 3 now, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 2, that they built the, the altar first and they offered sacrifices. So the temple's not built yet. Sacrifice is back. It's the center of their worship. It's actually still necessary for the remission of sins. Well, by verse 8, they begin to work on the temple. You, you see Zerubbabel and the priests and the Levites, and they're, they're leading the work of this temple, rebuilding. And, of course, we saw some of this in the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Here, Ezra is narrative form. It's story form of that same, the same occurrence. And, in fact, the books of Ezra, and then we'll see Nehemiah here shortly, basically pick up where Second Chronicles left off. And that's why you had to go backwards. Ezra, we've put, somebody since has put Ezra and Nehemiah back there with Chronicles in order to be of some kind of order. And that's what we see in our Old Testament. It's not that way in the Hebrew Old Testament. But you see now, as you're looking at chapter 3, verse 10, the foundation for this new temple has been laid. And, and they, they have a celebration. There's great joy as the beginning of the temple is obvious. There's music, there's shouting, praising the Lord, and yet this was punctuated with weeping. Some remembered the great temple of Solomon, and this new temple was not going to be like Solomon's great temple. And that caused sadness in the group. It makes me think, you know, there's, there's a time to look back and a time for grief and sadness, but looking forward to what God is doing now is also important. We need to be careful to not get too stuck looking back. Well, they're off to a good start by chapter 4, and you see immediately that opposition arises. Opposition. What is the opposition? Look at verse 1. Let me just read a little bit there. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 2, they came to the leadership and they said, let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. This group was actually what we know, we would know as Samaritans. They're a mixed race. They're part Jew. They're part Assyrian or something else. They've been living here for quite some time. The leadership of the Jewish race, the, the returned Jews, rejected their offer. Now, why would they do that? Well, I think, and you can read different opinions about this, but I think these, these ones are clearly referred to as the enemies of Israel. So I might think there's some ulterior motive going on here. There's perhaps they want to intimidate, they want to manipulate the Jews, they want to keep them small and weak. Well, the enemies were offended, that's another sign, that they, that they could not um, help 
and the enemies continue to hinder the work in other ways. Now, they were very effective in hindering the work. And actually, we have a focus in this section on opposition. The focus continues. If you skip down to verse 24 of chapter 4, verse 24 of chapter 4, we were just in the beginning part of chapter 4, and then in verse 24 it says, the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Darius was the third king of Medo-Persia. At this point, the, the, the work on the temple had been stalled for 15 years by the time you get to verse 24. You can see a basic outline I threw up here, and these are the five kings that impact our biblical stories when it comes to Persia and media. Med media, I guess is how you say that. Um, if you look back now, look at, at chapter 4, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says there was opposition during King Ahasuerus. You see him up here. And then in verse 7, there was more opposition during Artaxerxes. Both of these Persian kings, remember Persia was the world power. Everyone answered to them during these days. However, these two kings in verse 6 and 7, they came after Darius. Why are they mentioned in verse 6 and 7? And Darius is mentioned in verse 24. Well, I think what's happening here, and you, you can please research on your own, but this section between verses 6 and verses 23. I believe it's not chronological. So it was thrown in here because it's thematic. It's Ezra threw it in to help us focus in on that emphasis of opposition to the Jews, both the rebuilding of the temple and then in this section that I'm telling you is not chronological, it talks about the rebuilding of the city so it's been thrown in here to help us thematically, not chronologically. Now, maybe that's confusing. I hope I haven't lost you on that. It's not natural for us. That's not necessarily the way that we would write. But it is more natural for the non-Western thinker to do such a thing. So as you come to verse 24 then, and then as we move into chapter 5, we're back to chronological time carrying forward. Cyrus is off the scene right here on the left, Cambyses is off the scene, and Darius one is king now. There's, there was more Dariuses down the line. That's why he gets a one. All right, look at verse, verse one of chapter five. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah now give their message. At this juncture in the story, Haggai, Zechariah show up. The people are convicted, and they rose, and they rebuilt the temple. They continued the work. This is after 15 years of inactivity. We looked at that a little closer last time. But again, immediately there's the theme of opposition that arises. I suppose you know that if you want to seek the Lord and if you want to follow Him, the people of God will face various sorts of opposition. That's the way that it goes. You see an individual here by the name of Tatsunai in verse 3. He's a governor of a nearby province, still under, the, under the, the thumb of Persia, of course. 
But he ends up writing a big long letter, verses 7 through 17, basically tattling to Darius concerning the building project. They're back at it again. Um, For whatever reason, these enemies were not interested in the Jews getting stronger, unified, their temple becoming part of of the scene for them. Well, Darius decides, as the king back in Persia, to search for this decree that the Jews have appealed to. And he finds it. He finds the decree in a place called Ekabana. Some, you, it's still there. It's a fortress. And in chapter 6, this is about 18 years later from when the decree was issued, Darius finds this decree and he took Cyrus's word very seriously. You see it in chapter 6. In verse 3, that not only did Cyrus issue, in the issuing of the decree, not only did Cyrus say that they were to return but they were to bring back the articles of the temple and to rebuild, and the royal treasury was to fund the whole project. Well, Darius replies to Tatanai, telling him to stay out of the way. Moreover, my friend, you are to use your tax collected from your province to cover the cost of the building as well as provide the animals for the sacrifice. That must have hurt. Well, Darius is very, he's, he's not joking about this. In fact, if you look at verse 11 and 12, there's consequences, and they're not pretty if you don't follow through. And of course, Tatanai and his cronies, they dare not disobey at verse 13 and following. So the Jews are able to move forward, building the temple, and in fact, finishing the temple. Remember, the prophets were involved heavily in the encouragement to do such a thing. And at the end of chapter 6, they dedicate it with great sacrifices, thanks to nearby province provision and then they observe the Passover okay this brings us to chapter 7 now hang on just for one minute I didn't give you an outline yet but here's a basic outline you could say that verses 1 through 6 excuse me chapters 1 through 6 could be considered the first section of the book of Ezra national rebuilding and opposition could be the emphasis or the theme of this section. We just looked at that. With the exception of that piece out of four, out of chapter four, that we believe is yet a future part of, of, of the story under Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus, all of the first part of Ezra took place from 538 when, the, when they went back under Zerubbabel to 516 BC. But we haven't seen anything about Ezra yet. But I think he's the author. He's writing this story. Ezra himself is a priest. He traces his lineage all the way back to Aaron the priest. And he's also a scribe. What's a scribe? That's one who copies important documents, and in his case, particularly the scriptures, probably the books of Moses, most importantly. There's a good possibility that Ezra wrote Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles as well. 7 through 10 is the second section of Ezra. And you might say spiritual reformation is the emphasis here. So right here between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is a period of time. During this time, Ahasuerus, or maybe you know the name Xerxes, is in Persia. Does that name ring a bell? You've read about him, haven't you? So the story of Esther takes place during that pause in this story here in Ezra. By the way, the, the theme of opposition is still there in the book of Esther, isn't it? Well, 
Now in chapter 7, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, his son, Artaxerxes, is on the throne. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 7. Look at verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. It says, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of God, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and its ordinances in Israel. He had a purpose, and he had a plan, didn't he? Well, without the time to dig too deeply, the king, Artaxerxes here, he wrote another decree, sending Ezra... And giving him permission to go back, and he gave permission for anyone else who wanted to join him, any Jews who wanted to join him and go back to the land. He gives Ezra encouragement to teach the law of God, and he generally puts his authority behind this, what we call the second return to Israel. It's about 60 years after Zerubbabel and that first return that we've been talking about. We'll see a third return in Nehemiah. By the time you get to chapter 8, their names and their numbers of those who head back. And we see that God gives protection and they arrive in Jerusalem. They place the treasure that they brought with them in the temple and they offer sacrifices. Chapter 9. Here's where we get to the story, part of what Steve had read for, has read for us. Some of the Jews who had been in the land already for some time, they had intermarried outside the faith. They'd married non-Jews who, who lived there when they arrived. This was a problem. But listen, this was not a racism problem. It was a syncretism issue. It was bringing paganism, at least this is how I understand it. It was bringing paganism, that is the service and the worship of other gods, into and combining that with what should have been a singular focus, a singular devotion to the Lord their God. Now, if you reflect on that for a minute, maybe you remember that that was a historical issue for the Jews all along the way. Intermarriage, perhaps, but syncretism, continuing to bring paganism into worship of the Lord. Well, this appalled Ezra, troubled him deeply, even to the point of tearing his clothes and pulling out some of his hair. Don't ask me why he did that. He sat down. He entered into the prayer of confession. It's something similar to the prayers you see from Daniel and from Nehemiah, actually. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 13. Here's Ezra. 9.13. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, he's praying here, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive should we break your commands again and intermarry with the people who committed these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. A portion of his prayer. Do you see the confession of sin? The confession of sin. Notice he includes himself. He was not one who intermarried, but he included himself. While he's doing this, 
Confessing, it says, weeping, falling face down. A large assembly of the people gathered around him. And they began to weep and God convicted them. It turns out that they encouraged Ezra to guide them in what needed to be done. It began with the leaders and eventually they separated themselves from the surrounding peoples and their foreign wives. They recognized that they had sinned. They had acted impurely and there is spiritual reformation. The rest of chapter 10, the final chapter in the book, gives more details about what happened here. And then it lists the offenders by name, some of them anyway, who had intermarried with these foreign and godless nations. Well, maybe this is a bit hard for us to understand, to know how to deal with this kind of a story. But let me just say that this is a good example of Scripture that is we could call descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, it's not prescribing something for the people of God to do throughout the ages. It's describing what happened and what needed to take place because of their syncretism. I think it's it's critical, it was critical for those returned Jews to preserve the lineage of the tribes, yes, but more importantly... They were bringing paganism into their midst. Syncretism was taking place. Think about the history of intermarriage with godless nations. That was a large part of their downfall, a large part of why they ended up in Babylon to begin with. Remember Solomon? He had some intermarriage problems. They were to have a singular devotion. No other gods before me, right? Intermarriage opened the door to that problem. Well, maybe you, you've heard of such a thing, but some have used this passage, this story, as an excuse for divorce. It must not do that. As I said, this does not give us an imperative or a direction to follow for today. Some find themselves married to an unbeliever, and they've used this story as a justification for divorce. But, well, and besides that, I met this really cute Christian, and, you know, I want to be biblical, Well, let us not go down that road. In fact, 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the very issue in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says, if you find yourself in marriage committed to an unbeliever, stay with them. We need to follow that direction. Well, hopefully you've learned a little bit about Ezra. I don't know about you, but I find this period of history, biblical history, as one of the fuzziest ones for me. Uh, But I hope you've placed him in the timeline of what we see in our scripture, and you've seen the value of Ezra's leadership in this remnant. And we noticed that they had opened the door to syncretism. Think about that for just a minute. In fact, let me give you a simple definition of syncretism. It's Simply, it's the amalgamation, or that is, the uniting, the combining of differing religious ideas. If you think about what's, what goes on in that case, it, it could be used more broadly to describe the uniting of cultural ideas, such as, we eat tacos all the time. That's syncretism, but it's okay. It's in food ideas. Here we're talking about spiritual categories. I'm talking about the singular devotion that we should have to the God of gods. 
You know, I think it's an issue that God followers have always faced. As we, as we, as we mentioned, the Old Testament, constantly facing the struggle of, of syncretism. The first century church, right after Jesus was, was raised and then ascended, they faced this struggle. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians, and we have a couple of those books in our Bible, it was to speak against syncretism. They were uniting themselves with pagan religious practices, all the while calling themselves Christians and claiming to worship the one true God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, let me just read a couple of phrases. It says, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? That's a, a foreign deity. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Those are rhetorical questions. None, in other words. They did not have, in that case, a singular devotion. In Acts chapter 8, this is examples of syncretism in the first century church. Simon, a man by the name of Simon, wanted to buy the Holy Spirit and add it to the repertoire of his magic tricks. But that's not how it works, isn't it? Is it? That's, we need singular devotion to God. It's an ongoing issue throughout the ages, struggling, fighting for that singular devotion to God. Listen to a more recent example. As we move a little closer to home, this is from a Catholic church setting, so it's not real close to home, but I believe this was in Bolivia. Here's what someone, what someone wrote. He said, the mass was over, the family next to me stood up and prepared to leave. I asked the man what the mass, that is the service and the, and the communion there in the Catholic setting, what it meant to him. He told me he had been coming to the church every week since he was a boy. Did he believe in prayer, I asked. He told me that he did, but his main concern was about keeping his family going to church. Religion was helpful, but he confided that it did not always meet his needs. When prayer failed, the shaman in his village would say an incantation over him, maybe sacrifice a chicken so that the spirits would heed the sight of blood and give him the favor that he needed. I asked him how he managed to balance two complete competing faiths, and he told me they were one and the same, in his opinion. They were all about God. In his mind, he saw no conflict between shamanism and Christianity. They functioned as one paradigm because that is how he had been brought up. He told me the spirit world of his village had kept his ancestors together and given them hope and power in the time of need. You see that example. Well, there's others even closer to home. Such things as omnitheism, that is, finding truth, finding God in all religions. Maybe you've been tempted by or involved in such a thing yourself. I, some, the, there's a church called the Universalist or Unitarian Universalist. They call themselves a church. And, and that's where you find many ways to God and to life. Of course, there are those who have literally brought idols into their homes and their, their places of worship and such things as that. But what about you and I? I don't know exactly where you are. One more example, maybe a little closer to home yet. A man by the name of Dr. Stephen Cook relates a conversation that he had. Listen to this. He says, I had a strange conversation with a young woman who was in graduate school and finishing her degree in social work. 
The woman became excited when I mentioned that I was in seminary and she proceeded to tell me about the Baptist church she was attending. She had been active in her church for several years and was involved in the choir and occasionally substituted for her Sunday school teacher. The conversation took a confusing turn when she told me she follows her daily horoscope, believing it helps guide her life. Stranger yet, she began to talk about how she believes in reincarnation. When I asked her why she believes in reincarnation, she says, because I believe God is fair and gives people second chances in another life to make up for bad choices in previous ones. She said all this with a big smile on her face. When I politely tried to explain the biblical teaching against astrology and reincarnation, she quickly shut the conversation down saying, I believe what I believe. Is that a little closer to home? I believe what I believe. Well, I think here in this room, my hope and my desire is that we shoot for and we desire a singular devotion to God. There has to be clear lines somewhere in what it means to be singularly devoted to God and avoid syncretism. You know, on the one hand, I'm not talking about the exterior. This is a heart matter. The church will and should meld with the culture to a degree. And in many ways, Jesus and the gospel needs to be expressed and represented in every culture in such a way that it's understood. That's called contextualization, and, and that's another topic. But on the other hand, there has to be clear lines somewhere, doesn't there? We can easily unite improper beliefs and improper practices to our Christianity. So, maybe it goes without saying, but wisdom and thoughtfulness and discernment are, are needed. And hey, by the way, we're going to end up in a little bit different places along the road, and that's okay. You know, what are some areas, maybe, you're already, maybe your mind's already turning on this, what are some areas that we can add to that we can combine things of the world, things of our flesh, improper beliefs with a singular devotion to God. Can you think of any? If, you th if something comes to your mind, write it down. There are some obvious ones, isn't there? Some of those we looked at. I'm sure you can think of them. Maybe you're facing them. There's some maybe less obvious ones, too, as we think about that second point, adding the ways of our flesh to, to our Christianity. Syncretism can be subtle. Syncretism can be very subtle for most of us. It could be superstitious practices. Maybe it's simply immorality. There's a lot of choices out there. Maybe it's world philosophies. There's lots of world worldly, if you will, philosophies that grind against good doctrine. Materialism, we can add that improperly to our Christian faith. You know, hobbies, work, job, all of those things can come along and that's syncretism. Without recognizing it, I think sometimes, we try to combine these things and other things with a singular devotion to God. So I ask then, how do we keep an eye out for these? How do, we, how do we see it in ourselves? 
how do we know when it comes against us, when we're tempted? We may not always see that. How, how are we supposed to know that? How do we determine where that line is? Well, I think you know the answer. There's, there's multiple things that could be said, but the basics of the answer for you and for me, that singular devotion to God is based upon his word. We need to know his word. That's key. If you reflect on Ezra for a minute, he knew God's law. Remember he said he, it was his purpose to study and teach the law. He had to teach the people. Apparently they didn't know. Apparently they weren't aware. At least that was part of the problem. For us to have a strong singular devotion to God, we need to know his word. Now, I don't just mean a conceptual belief in the Bible or in God. That's not enough. I mean reading God's word. I mean studying it. I mean memorizing it, developing doctrine. And as you understand and, and, and read God's word, you will develop good theology to live your life by. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe, but this doesn't happen at a Bible study every now and then or at a church service once a week even. You need to be in the Word yourself. I hope you aim to be in God's Word every day. We don't always make every day, but that should be our aim. How are we going to get that done? That gives us a foundation for the singular devotion to God. How about kids? Listen for a minute. Young people. What happens when grandma and grandpa are dead? What happens when mom and dad are gone? That's going to happen. How do you hold to a singular devotion to God? There's lots of ways, but the first one is, kids, you listening? Good. I knew you were. It's by knowing God's word. Start now. You guys know how to read, most of you, and you will learn. Start now. Read God's word. Develop a pattern of reading God's word. Even if you don't understand every bit of it, study it. Ask questions. Make that a central point of your life for a singular devotion to God. Well, as Paul Telfer always says, we are masters at justifying our desires. It's easy for us to be syncretistic. We need to keep that in mind. But I am sure for most of us here, it's your heart's desire. It's your aim to have a singular devotion. Amen? Amen. And I commend you for that. Good work. That, it's a burden. It's actually a burden upon the Christian. The world doesn't have that burden, but it's upon us to have that singular devotion. And we work that out, continue to build that foundation by immersing yourself in the Word of God. You know, it's kind of like jumping in the pool. So jump in the pool, get really wet, and don't dry off. Get in the Word of God and stay in the Word of God. I just want to bring up as we close here, we have uh, <clears throat> we've, we've said a lot of times that there's prayer with the elders at the end of the service. And um, I just want to say that that's not intended to put anyone on display. It's not, not meant to be public. If you have a prayer need, it's an opportunity for you to just come up here. It's a good spot. Everybody's dismissed and leaving. Don't worry about it. But if you're facing anything today, maybe it's rough times. Maybe it's something surrounding a conviction. 
Maybe it's just a burden. Maybe it's a praise, and you want to bring that to God together with one of the elders. Maybe it's questions about Christianity. Don't be ashamed. Come up and, and ask one of the elders or one of the team, and, and we'll just bring that together to the Lord. It's a great opportunity. And as we, as we sing this last song, a couple of the elders will make their way up here and be available to you. Let's pray together. God, thank you. You know us, and I say thank you because you're faithful to us, even when we are syncretistic. Thank you for your discipline that helps us when we begin unintentionally so much of the time, but we begin to add things in or we, or we neglect your word. And God, I just ask that you would help me and that you would challenge me and, and then each one of my brothers and sisters here to know your word to be in your word, to get really wet and to stay that way as we immerse ourselves, and as we struggle to do that daily in order, God, that we would know truth, that we would have a clear picture, that we would know where those lines are in the culture that we live in. Help us to change when we need a change. Thank you for the desire. I know the, the overwhelming desire in the room here is to have a singular devotion to you. I'm encouraged by that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.